Little did you know you are strong, smart, insightful, beautiful, hilarious, loyal, and loved. The podcast you need to navigate your 20s. Little did you know with Shelby Eastwood. Friday or whatever day you're listening. Uh, happy May! It's May! What's that uh, song? Isn't it like a... I th- no. I don't know. That's, what's that from? It's like just Timberlake or something? That meme? I always saw it, but I never really understood what it was. So if y'all could fill me on on that, that'd be great because I feel like I just totally botched that, but oh well. Um, anyway, we have a jam-packed episode today. Um, a special guest... He's in the waiting room. His name is Eric, and um, we're just going to jump right into it today. So I hope you're ready. (laughs) Let's take a quick break, and then we'll get him in. Hi, Eric. How are you? I'm doing great, Shelby. How are you? Good, thank you. Thank you for taking time out of your day to chat with me. My pleasure. <laughs> um, where are you, anyway? I always like finding out where everybody is. Los Angeles. L.A., that's cool. Yeah. So what, It's you're three hours behind me then, I think? I think. That's right. I think. Okay, that's cool. Is it nice and sunny and hot there? That's the way we like it. <laughs> we have like... Actually, it's a little cool for here, but, you know. We're getting it's all like, relative. We're getting like 20 centimeters of snow today, so you can have some if you want. Wow. <laughs> just never never ends with the snow up here in northern northern Ontario um yeah I'm, I'm really excited to chat with you today and kind of hear your story and the adventure that you went on um so tell me tell me your story tell me everything what motivated you to do what you do what like this backpacking story tell me everything wow well everything's a lot um <laughs> But I'll say this, uh, I grew up in Philadelphia, okay, East Coast, and I knew from, I would say, uh, a fairly young age that music was my singular passion, mm-hmm. and it's the thing that I was most driven to do, and I feel in a sense that I was lucky to know exactly what I wanted to do, because I, I certainly... I feel like that was not necessarily a common thing for people coming of age, you know, teenage years, even into your 20s. Um, So I kind of had that already figured out. And I was um, pretty kind of all consumed by by music. And when I say music, I'm I'm speaking of my my goal really was to be a singer songwriter. Wow. yeah, and uh, music was the thing that got me through high school. I don't know how I would have survived high school without it. <laughs> and um, I knew that that was my path, but you know, you still have to you still have to navigate the world. So For just sure. knowing what you want to do isn't quite enough. Um, and it was it was very much expected that I would go to college. And yeah. For me, the the appeal of going to college was living away from home. Really, it was just that simple. I didn't really put much more thought into it than that. Um, <laughs> But I kind of um, struggled a little bit in terms of I never I didn't really feel uh, at home at, at college because again the only thing that I really wanted to do was music and I found a way to kind of transpose that onto my college experience by 
I always had my guitar with me when I would write a new song. I would literally just travel around the dorm door to door for people and, and play it and get feedback and, you know, we just wander around and play for people. And I would, when I think back on what I did, I would like walk into a study lounge. People are there reading their books, like studying for tests and stuff. I have my guitar. I'm like, who wants to, who wants a free concert? And amazingly, like, you know, no one ever really gave me a hard time about that. That's, um, that's good. Yeah. I guess it shows you where everyone else's priorities were as well. Facts, <laughs> I mean, you're, true. You know. <laughs> um, anyway, so after uh, after college, I ended up moving to Nashville, and mm. Nashville, of course, is known as uh, we call it Music City that's, here in the U.S. That's my bucket list city. It's literally to ah. go go see Nashville, go visit Nashville. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. I mean, you know, I lived there in the '90s, so this this uh, dates me a bit. And I I know actually, I still have friends there, so I know that it's grown quite a lot since I was there. When I was there, you could pretty much get anywhere you wanted to go in 15 minutes. Wow. But Nashville was amazing. And it, and it was a, you know, it was being immersed in a music environment. Mm-hmm. Everyone there was a musician, you know, um, uh, the exterminator who comes to your apartment to take care of the bugs <laughs> songwriter. I mean, like literally <laughs> ev- everyone there, you know, and, uh, it, there were uh, just a ton of opportunities mm. to perform because they had open mic nights and writers nights. Writers nights is just really kind of a, a fancier, more organized open mic night. Mm-hmm. Um, they had them all over town in all kinds of venues, everything from kind of hotel uh, bars to pizza joints. I mean, like restaurants. That's so uh, cool. All yeah, all over the place, you know, you would encounter, you'd have opportunities to listen to songwriters, to perform your own music, and to kind of um, connect with other people doing the same thing, get practice, you know, writing and, and performing and mm-hmm. just getting in front of a microphone. And I don't know how familiar you are with Nashville or what you know about Nashville, but there's a, a famous venue called the Bluebird Cafe. I was just going to ask about that because that's where Taylor Swift was sang when she started. <laughs> yeah, I mean, playing the Bluebird is, you know, a, a rite of passage yeah. for, for songwriters in Nashville. And um, yeah, I remember, in fact, just, just talking about the Bluebird Cafe. They had an open mic night on Monday nights, so... Uh, and they had a system. Now I can't even imagine how swamped it is. Um, but even back then, you kind of like would throw your name in a hat. They tried to be fair to give everyone a chance to play. So if you had like played the last week, you couldn't do it again. Yeah. You know, you'd, you'd have to actually physically show up, throw, put your name in a hat. Um, and if it was drawn, you know, you were you you or you. It was a hat. I guess that there was there were two hats. One for those who had not played the previous week, and one for those who had. And if they had room after they drew all the, the names from the, the hat where people had not played, then they might take some from the other. But they, you know, they tried to be uh, pretty fair about it. And then on Sunday, so that was the Monday night thing that anyone could play. And there was a definite difference at the Bluebird. I mean, they take it very seriously at the Bluebird. There's a lot of shushing. They don't like, you know, you play in some bar and people are talking all through your set. And, you know, yeah. Uh, but at the Bluebird, they want total focus and attention on the they take it very seriously and they honor the songwriters uh, even if it's your you know even if you're literally just like fresh into town and playing for the first time and you've you know maybe written like three songs in your life uh, you get the same respect you're afforded the same respect as the most seasoned songwriters they take the music it's all about the music and the listening experience at the bluebird so naturally and because of the reputation even then that the bluebird had 
um, it was it's an intimidating kind of experience when you first uh, play there. It's a tiny place, by the way. It's That's, very small. I just it's in a little. It's it's in a strip mart. Like it's in a really in, it, yeah. I mean, it's this like little unassuming place um, in a in a tiny little strip mall kind of uh, and uh, but you know I I called it bluebird nerves like. No matter who you were, you, you, you experienced bluebird nerves. I mean, even like, even very seasoned performers, when they came to town, they knew the reputation of the place. And, you know, it, it's a real, it was a real phenomenon. So for the Sunday night show, you had to, they only did auditions at the time. I want to say maybe three, maybe four times a year tops. And it would be like a cattle call. They would herd you in early in the morning. There'd be like a hundred plus people waiting outside, usually with their guitars um, and then they would let you in and you would, you wouldn't even do a full song for your audition. You would get, if I remember correctly, you would get 60 seconds. Oh, and, wow. and what they, what they wanted was essentially for you to do a verse and a chorus of a song and then get off. <laughs> so just verse, chorus, boom, you're done. Audition done. So you don't even get to do a full song and they, they would, they had judges and they would, you know, rate you. So I, I, it's quite an experience, you know, um, again, very much sort of a, just par for the course, paying your dues as a songwriter trying to get attention. So I remember it took me five auditions before I finally passed. Wow. And, you know, they only do them again three or four times a year. So that, that was a, a good amount of time. And then when I finally like, okay, you get to play the Sunday, you know, Sunday writer's night it was like an eight month wait from the time you know and this is back in the 90s so (laughs) I don't even know what they do now although a good friend of mine is actually the host of the Sunday night show now so maybe I'd have an in that's that's so cool (laughs) but you know the, the the experience was great um it was very it was very kind of romantic. I was pursuing mm-hmm. my dream. It was the thing I, I most wanted to do. It was the only thing I wanted to do. And I was extremely driven and focused and determined. And it was, you know, I met um, some really, really great friends. You kind of connect with people who yeah. you feel... Uh, we. I was kind of a misfit in the sense that Nashville is predominantly known certainly back then it was for country mm-hmm. music and country artists and really that I, I was a city kid from philly i mean i liked great songs you know <laughs> uh whatever the the genre happened to be but i wasn't you know really a country music guy my stuff was more influenced by folk and and okay. rock and i mean i loved all different styles of music but i basically more or less, you could have maybe considered me an acoustic rock type, or maybe they would have called me, you know, indie yeah, yeah. musician. Um, actually, your generation would have probably called me emo. How about that? Because very, you know, I would I would do these very, you know, personal, uh, heart-wrenching songs of <laughs> angst and, you know, love gone wrong. And um, so that, you know, but I, I met a group of other songwriters who we all just got each other. We were all from different parts of the country. I mean, you know, in Nashville, it is mostly transplants. People come to Nashville Mm -hmm. specifically to do music. Um, But I befriended this, uh, this group of um, songwriters where we all just, we, we, we had this kind of the same sense of humor. We, we admired each other's talents and, and we were all unique. We were all a lot different from the sort of typical standard um, coming to Nashville 
doing a country song that's just like every other country song you heard kind of <laughs> fair fair <laughs> yeah and um you know so it was uh, it was a i was there for really i mean i actually spent the summer there before i graduated college i did it i i went just as an experiment to see what it was like to live in a music in a music environment and to live on my own for the first yeah. time because col- college really isn't living on your own at least it wasn't the way i experienced it so uh i i i did that the summer before i turned 21 so i'm playing in all these bars i wasn't yet really 21 um and then i finished i went back and like very i've had this huge sense of obligation like i have to finish my college degree i did that and then i and then one of the songwriter friends i met in nashville invited me he said that we have an open I have an open bedroom in the apartment if you want it. And I, I moved in with, you know, and, and spent the next three years really going all out. I mean, I worked day, whatever day jobs I had to work, yeah. waited tables. I was a substitute teacher, K to 12, all subjects. That was, you know, I did telemarketing for a short time. I did, you know, so many, I moved furniture. I mean, I did just so many different jobs. But again, everywhere I went, I met other musicians mm-hmm. and, and I met incredibly talented people uh, in each of these sort of unlikely, uh, day jobs, you know, I met, um, and, and you know, what's, what's really cool. So I'm, I'm writing songs and I'm, you know, experiencing, uh, I'm just getting, trying to get as much experience as I can in front of a microphone, in front of people performing, you know, improving my songs. And, but I would meet other songwriters, you know, for instance, uh, an amazingly talented guy I met, his name, by the way, I'm, is Jody Nardone. If anyone cares, he's um, he still lives in Nashville. He's a he's one of the best piano players you'll ever hear. Um, he has a jazz trio now, but back then he had uh, a rock, sort of a country rock band that uh, he and and these guys that he grew up with in the New Jersey area had formed, and they moved to Nashville to try to make it, um, like we were all trying to do. But just as an example, so I'm working this telemarketing job, terrible job. I mean. I didn't know it was it was a con thing like no one they wouldn't have drawn anyone in if if they had advertised it as a telemarketing (laughs) job it was advertised as like uh, publishing something exotic and basically you were on the phone all day calling people and you were trying to sell them um, alumni directories of the college that they went to (laughs) You you would you would get there even if you you would you would get them on the phone you remember this is all pre internet yeah um this information was you know i guess prized by some people it wasn't readily available online and you could you know i would call and i would have i would get all their updated information and then i would try to sell them the directory uh it was an awful terrible job and i only lasted a very very short time but here's the thing I had this uh, massive crush on this this young woman that worked there. It was the only reason I even stayed beyond like the first week, and um, and also, uh, she ended up having no interest in me, and she she got together with some drummer that worked there. Um, but this guy Jody that I met, we connected, we bonded, and I ended up writing a song that was inspired by this um, this romantic interest I had in the the woman um and then when i went to record it jody played on it so uh on you know on the recording so it's like every every experience i had seemingly unrelated to music having nothing to do with music was fair game and um you know i I, when i was substitute teaching 
uh, I had a song that I wanted a string quartet arrangement on. And I actually did try to do the arrangement myself. And I realized after a short amount of time, I have no business doing this. I don't really know what I'm doing. I should try to find someone that can do this. And I was substitute teaching at an arts magnet school. And I walked into the band room um, after a class was letting out. And I talked to the teacher and I, I said, basically, hey, I'm, I, I've got, I'm a songwriter. I've got this song and I'm, I'm looking for someone to do a string quartet arrangement. Is that something you can do? And he said, sure. And he did it for me for like 50 bucks and he did an amazing job. Wow. So even, even these day jobs, you yeah. know, um, led to making connections and opportunities and, either, yeah. and opportunities and, you know, inspired ideas for songs or, uh, or I, I met musicians. And so I, you know, I mean, I could go on and on just about this, but the bottom line with, um, with this is that I, you know, it's so interesting because the whole music industry has completely changed, um, you know, since the nineties in so many ways. And back then the record company model and the idea of getting a record deal was mm. still, it was kind of maybe like the end of that era Okay. where the record companies were like the big gatekeepers, the, the coveted thing as an aspiring artist was to get a record deal mm -hmm. because then you'd, you'd get a record company behind you and they would take care of everything for you. Yeah. Um, including take stripping you of all your money, but that's a whole other story. Uh, but you know, they would like, you know, they would provide a recording studio yeah. and they would give you a producer to work with and they would, you know, uh, have, have a whole marketing machine in place to put your music out in the world. Um, so I, I was trying to, go that kind of conventional conventional i mean for for a musician conventional path and i made a, a, a studio demo of three songs and shopped it around and was literally rejected by 75 different record companies i should say rejected or completely ignored the rejections when you actually got a someone took the time to send you a rejection letter in the mail it was it was really exciting um you know that was a thrill like to get like they, they cared enough to reject you like at least they the acknowledged time. you <laughs> yeah exactly um so but that you know after about 75 of those um you know rejections i thought well you know what um that's fine i want to make an album more than anything in the world so i'm going to just do it record company or not record deal or not and that ended up being a brilliant idea because for a number of reasons i had complete and total creative control over the, the project. Whereas if I were recording for a label, I would have had to, you know, someone would have been there saying like, you can't have a song longer than this. Yep. You got to do it this way. All yeah. that. But I had total creative freedom and it was such a, such a joy and a labor of love and amazing experience to assemble my own musicians from people that I knew and or mm -hmm. were close friends that I had made. And you know, make the album that I envisioned and yeah. that I wanted. And, and uh, there's a song that's like seven and a half. It's a seven and a half minute long story song that's on there. Every song, I, I wanted it to be a little different. I mm -hmm. didn't want it to, you know, I wanted each song to have something unique about it production wise. And uh, and it was it was truly and I learned by doing. I mean, I had never done this. I had made demos, you know, uh, at home, but I had never done an album yeah uh in a studio with you know uh incredibly talented musicians and it was it was amazing to see your music kind of come to life i, I would think it, it might be analogous to if you're a screenwriter and you write 
a screenplay and you're really proud of the screenplay and you think, wow, well, well, like this is the movie, right? Like this is, you know, but the screenplay is just the skeleton for the movie. Yeah. It's, it's probably the most important part of the movie, but there's a million choices that need to be made. And if you gave that screenplay to six different directors, you would end up with six different movies. True. Yeah. So I learned, wow, I hear I thought all the work was done. I had all the songs written and I realized that, uh, wow. But I realized in a, in a exciting way that there were so many things I could do with the songs and there were so many choices to be made in terms of instrumentation. And it was, it was, the most exciting thing. I don't know how else to say it. It was like, you know, and I was working with a guy, this guy actually, his name is Steve Goody. He's the one that currently hosts the Sunday Night Writer Show at the Bluebird, among many other things that he does. And uh, I was using his his studio and he was brilliant. I would say, I want the guitar to sound just like, you know, and I would tell him the song and we had, we kind of had some very similar musical tastes and he would find the sound you know, and wow. yes, that's exactly what I wanted. You know. <laughs> um, that's so, so fun, though. Oh, it was amazing. So, you know, and then I once I finished it, it was, you know, an incredible amount of work and it was a total obsession. But I managed to do this on a very low budget. I had a day job. I was working full time while doing this, recorded the album, finished the album and then realized, OK, now it's my mission. It's really funny to think about this because I was so young. Um, but that's part of the beauty of youth is that you, you don't know what you don't know and your naivete can be a wonderful asset in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. For sure. Uh, and also just the guts that I had looking back. I mean, so I was like, okay, so now it's time. The day job has served its purpose. It's time to quit the job and it's time to now devote myself full time, start my own record label because I don't have a record deal. And one of my, my inspiration for that really was, do you know, are you familiar with Ani DeFranco? Do you know who she is? Okay. No. <laughs> you, should. you should check her out. I feel like I well, should, she, but <laughs> she was, um, she was kind of, uh, I mean, she, she was a total inspiration to me artistically. Uh, she was my generation. She was ridiculously talented and unique. She had just such a unique and ferocious style of writing and playing and she you know uh anyway i could go on about ani defranco but the point is with her is that she had managed to reach a really enviable place in her career where she did everything really grassroots she would like drive her car from place to place and sell cassettes out of the back of her she'd open up pop open her trunk and sell people cassettes of her music and she almost as a, on a lark started this record label that she called righteous babe records and uh, I think it was somewhat of just sort of like a jokey kind of thing initially, but it became a real, I mean, a real serious thing where not only has she released dozens of her own albums since then on that label, she's released other artists' recordings as well. Wow. Um, it's a, I mean, she was a phenomenon. And in the 90s, she really was kind of um, getting noticed and, and, and coming of age, as it were, as, a, as an artist. And she was a force to be reckoned with. And check this out. This is, this is what she had accomplished. Now, I was already a huge fan artistically. Like, you know, I, I felt she was as good or, or better than anyone else that was known at the time. Mm-hmm. But what I didn't think was possible was that you could actually, one day I'm at my day job and I'm opening up the Billboard magazine and looking at the top 200 albums and I see Ani 
DeFranco. And, you know, it lists all these artists. It'll, it said, you know, this again, I don't know if you know these artists from the 90s, but like Hootie and the Blowfish, yep. they were a huge group. Um, it would say them and it would say their record label and they had like the number one album or whatever. And it'll have, have all these, you know, very major artists on major labels. Yeah. And then somewhere on that list was Ani DeFranco and for record label, it said Righteous Babe. And I went, no way. Like, how did she do that? That is amazing. That's so and cool. So I was so inspired because, again, artistically, I knew that she was awesome and, and deserved to be on yeah. that, you know, like as, as good as any of the artists, better than a lot of them. But the fact that she was able to penetrate the, the, the business and mm -hmm. get heard literally without a record company yeah. backing her up, without the machinery of the music business, she did it on her own. In fact, I remember she had a toll-free number for her label and it was 1-800-ON-HER-OWN. Wow. You know, maybe I think the, the N was, was missing because it was an extra digit. But, like, yeah. you know, she was fiercely independent, both in terms of her artistry and in terms of her the way she approached her career. So she got to the point where the record labels, normally as an artist, you're desperately vying for the attention of a record mm -hmm. label. Please, please choose me, choose me, you know, record me, you know. Um, she was at the point where because she had established such a following on her own, the record labels were all courting her. Oh. They were coming to her and and trying to woo her to their, yeah. and to her, as far as she was concerned, she wanted no part of it. They were the dark side. <laughs> she was and like, she F was, you guys, I did this on my exactly, own. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. In fact, she had a song called uh, the, the Million You Never Made, which was, uh, I could be the million you never made. Like, <laughs> screw you to whatever record company. You know. So sassy. Um, I love it. <laughs> yeah. So that was a huge inspiration. I decided, you know, again, I mean, I didn't think I was going to replicate yeah. her success, but it was like, wow, that's something that can be done. I didn't yeah, know that yeah. that could be done. So I'll just start my own record label. Why not? And I did. And I didn't know anything about business at all. <laughs> I mean, I, but I, I got a toll-free number. I got a P.O. box. And I opened up a business checking account. I got a, a business license from the state of Tennessee. So I did the things. Yeah. And I, I was operating out of my bedroom. And I made it my mission to, I had the CD. I was really proud of it. It was finished. And now I was trying to get it out into the world. And I wasn't, unlike Andy DeFranco, if a record company had come calling and said, you know, we're really interested, we'd love to sign you, I probably would have done it in a heartbeat. <laughs> uh, I wasn't opposed to that, you know, but... Um, I would have welcomed whatever, um, as you know, if I had a champion in the business who I, you know, who who I felt good about, and yeah. I thought I would have totally, you know, uh, welcomed. I would have embraced that, but I didn't. So I I decided to take it upon myself. I was very impatient. I didn't want to wait around for a booking agent to notice me and, and sign me, or a manager to to show interest, or a record company to take me under their wing, or any of that. So I literally became all of those things. So I was a singer slash songwriter slash guitarist slash one man record company slash booking agent slash manager when did you sleep <laughs> yeah well it was utterly exhausting and very stressful because i was now i had i had cut the the financial umbilical cord of my day job oh yeah so yeah so i was just racking up debt i was just you know and and you know i was spending money it seemed like on on invisible things so for instance again this is pre i mean the internet existed but it was not it was really in its infancy in terms of people using it on a in any kind of significant way beyond 
sending emails. Even that was pretty new to me at that, at that point. But, um, so I had to, I had these physical CDs and I had physical, uh, uh, press kits, promo kits made, and I would go to the post office and physically mail hundreds of physical packages, and I would put the postage on my credit card. So I would have like you know hundreds of dollars of postage. Wow. And on my credit card bill for that, you know, for each time I would show up at the post office, and I felt like, wow, that's like, it's like air. I'm paying for air, <laughs> and then. And my phone, you know, again, this is pre, I feel like I'm so old saying all this stuff, but this was before cell phones were really a thing. So, um, you know, you would pay when you did calls, long distance phone yeah, calls. Yeah, yeah. You had to pay by the minute, depending on where the call was, you know, uh, in relation to where you lived. So honestly, Shelby, the first month, so I was on the phone like day and night calling colleges because I was trying to book gigs at colleges. Um, radio stations, both commercial stations and college stations, uh, weekly newspapers all over the country, wow. uh, you know, and and whomever else, like anyone and everyone. So I would have a list of calls to make set up the night before for the next day based on time zones. Call make all these calls, you know. For I mean, it was it was a it was crazy, but and it was. I remember the first month's phone bill came in after this. It was six hundred some dollars just for just the phone bill right and this is this is in the 90s six hundred dollars today would be a ton to spend right on a monthly phone bill yeah it was like crazy was well considering considering now you can get nationwide calling yeah (laughs) yeah unlimited yeah yeah so um so it was like i was taking a big risk in a sense but there was nothing i felt was more worth taking you know like it was like there was nothing more worth investing in and, and taking a chance on and, and, and taking a risk with because it was literally the thing I most wanted to do in the whole entire world. The, fact, and the only thing I wanted to do. The in fact the whole that you time. hustled that hard and literally wore every single hat is super inspiring. So did you get it out there? So I think you probably know where this story is going <laughs> to, some, to some extent. Um I did get it out there. And the funny thing is, well, it's not funny. I mean, uh, the the thing is sort of in acknowledgement of my hardworking younger self, I actually did succeed in a very, very small way in each of the way in each of the realms that I was, you know, trying to break through into. And, you know, it, and it's crazy. Like, again, it was a very kind of um, Don Quixote-esque, quixotic David versus Goliath. I mean, like, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get my CD, my songs played on the radio. No one in the world knows who I am. I don't have a record label behind me, and I'm competing for airtime with like the major artists of the day. So yeah. what am I like? You know, but but I did. Like I was like, I need to know what's going to happen. Like the only way to find out is to just. And I called, you know, and followed up relentlessly, <laughs> relentlessly. Um, so I actually managed to get, I did, I guess I got some airplay on radio stations all over the country. That's but amazing. But just in little, little, little drips and drips and drabs, like, you know, nothing. Doesn't matter. Nothing you, that, you still yeah. got it. <laughs> yeah. It was extremely exciting to find out that a radio station in some state I had never even set foot in was playing a song that I had recorded, you know, uh, and, and people were hearing it in New Mexico or Wyoming or, you know, Oregon, Oregon or, um, you know, Michigan, like all these, and I'd never been to any of these places. 
So it was extremely exciting whenever I would get word of um, someone playing something off the CD. And, um, and I did, um, I got a handful of reviews in different publications. But the, the, the plan for actually making money, because these were all long shots, right? Oh, yeah. Like these were all, and I knew that. I mean, you know, uh, I, and I sent my album to the producers I most admired. I actually even sent a copy to Ani DeFranco's record label to see if I could open for her. Wow. And they, they sent me a very, very nice rejection letter. <laughs> they returned my CD to me unopened, but it was, it was, a, with, it was accompanied by a really like encouraging letter saying, you know, um, we know how valuable these discs are, so we don't want to, we don't want to take this from you. You know, you can use this elsewhere and Ani's not looking for opening acts or whatever they said, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, but the, the idea that I had to actually make money was I thought, uh, I'm going to do a tour. I'm going to play colleges because I knew from my time in college and after that college audiences were kind of ideal for me. I could, I could keep the attention of it with just my, me and my guitar and playing songs, mostly my own songs, but some cover songs as well. I knew how to hold an audience's mm. attention. And I felt like the college audience was in a way my ideal audience rather than playing in some noisy bars or clubs yeah. where people aren't listening. Cause my songs were, were not music. You know, it wasn't like I was a loud rock band and you were like gonna just like party to or dance to. Um, my songs were more like songs you'd listen to, especially when I would just play them myself on yeah. an acoustic guitar. So I had this plan for, um, yeah, since you asked, I mean, you asked the, the story. So I had this plan for uh, booking myself at as many colleges as humanly possible. <laughs> and and um, I called all the cold called all hundreds of colleges across the United States. I focused mostly on the East Coast because that's where the higher concentration of colleges was. And it had to be logistically doable. I had to be able to drive from one to the next mm -hmm wherever they had, wherever I would line up the gigs, you know? And, uh, so I, I, this was the spring of 1997 and I was projecting for the fall. And the, my goal was to spend the fall semester, roughly August through December, uh, driving from college to college, playing as many gigs as humanly possible and building up a mailing list. Again, written mailing yeah. list you would your yeah. mailing list you would send postcards to like let people know about your shows um i know it sounds like olden times it sounds like the wild west it's i was i was i was three years old when you did all this <laughs> okay and th this was not that long ago. it wasn't no <laughs> but it's funny when i describe it now you know um there was no you know i wasn't even collecting email addresses really it was like just get yeah their, literally get their physical address um, try to sell the CD, get them on a mailing list so that I could keep them up to date on what was going on. And the goal was literally to just try to play as many shows yeah. as, I, as I could in that like four month period and see what would happen and mm -hmm. see what, you know, and I, it, like it was, it was the dream. I mean, it was like, this is the dream and I'm, I'm going after it with everything that I've got. So I was on the phone cold calling colleges and just from being on the phone so much, trying to line up gigs for the fall. I ended up getting some gigs for the spring and negotiating them over the phone for the current semester. 
And I remember, uh, I, v- I vividly remember being on the phone with this woman at a, who was at a college called um, Lincoln Memorial University in Harrogate, Tennessee. It was in the, like, the northeastern corner of the state of Tennessee. It was about a four-hour drive from Nashville. And I just spontaneously said, I'll do it for, I don't know, $200 or whatever. And, and if you feed me and put me up for the night, then we're good. <laughs> and it was like, there was no contract. It was just all done over yeah. the phone. I drove to the college. Uh, met with my contact there. Play, they fed me dinner. I played the show. They, you know, I drove to some local motel that they had booked a room for me at. And I remember the feeling of I did it. Like, there's no record company. There's no manager. There's no booking agent. I did it. I like I. Yeah, I did it. <laughs> you know, and it was it was very empowering and. I was really, I thought, like, this is actually doable. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I might be able to somehow make this work. I ended up also pl- playing a couple of shows at Penn State, which was my uh, alma mater in Pennsylvania. Um, I ended up doing a road trip, drove up to PA, did a couple shows there, and visited people that I knew, friends and family, and drove back to Nashville. But I was still, my eye was on... The prize was the fall semester and living on the road. And the, and the goal was I, I had a crap job. I mean, it was as crap jobs go. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> but um, the job that I had left, I was making like something like $21,000 a year when I left that job. And I thought if I can re- if I can make the same amount of money, but being instead of doing work that like, you know, who cares? Uh, but being on the road. Yeah. Playing music. My tr- playing my music living my dream um and i didn't know what that what the reality of that was going to be like mind you it it was probably going to be really lonely i mean i was by myself and uh it's a lot of driving to do you know when you're young you can do it when you're my age the thought of doing that (laughs) is not as appealing it's not as romantic um my age being 49 by the way so i'll be 15 uh, this year so but you know i was 20 let's see i when i was doing this i was 24 so this was you know like half my life ago and um the 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 long and short of it or i should say you know it's we've already heard the long of it the short of it is is that i i had 182 schools that i was targeting this was just the subset this wasn't as the number of schools i called this was just the number of schools where I actually you were going got to. someone on yeah. the phone and, uh, you know, they agreed to have me send them my stuff and I was in communication with them. And I thought if I can book somewhere between 20 to 40 gigs, depending like, you know, different yeah. fees for different schools, if I could book somewhere in that vicinity out of the 182 that I was very actively and aggressively pursuing, then to me it would have been a, a total success. Mm-hmm. Like I thought, you know, then... Um, and then I would, you know, reassess from there and, and think, what, what do I do next? Yeah. But um, when all was said and done after months and months of making these calls and, you know, just putting myself out there all day long, every day, trying to line up this tour, um, with a lot of potential deals fell through. And when it was all said and done, I literally ended up with one booking one out of 182 schools wow one (laughs) one gig now the gig paid nine hundred dollars it was a school in pennsylvania dickinson college 
And uh, again, same kind of thing. Like they fed me, put me up for the night and paid me for the show. I just needed 20 more like it and it would have been great. But that was it. And um, what I now, obviously, I had hoped for a lot more than that. Yeah. If I had if I had been able to book 80 shows, I would have played 80. Yeah. Um, but the to get that um, and, you know, anyway, there's a lot of things I, I could say about this looking back with the with the you know knowledge of hindsight yeah but um at the time it was it was the most it was absolutely devastating it, it, i was utterly utterly crushed I, I i didn't necessarily think that i was this was going to like lead to you know international stardom <laughs> no but you had more you had more like higher expectations for yourself yeah and i and i really thought that it was just a matter of effort mm-hmm. i thought you know, this is a game that I can I can play and I can win. And to me, again, the success would have just meant getting enough bookings to kind of even break even yeah. and make the thing. But to get to do the thing, to get yeah. to do the thing I wanted to do, to play shows and, and uh, you know, s- start making a name for myself and all of that. And I, I really felt like I was going about it in a practical way. I mean, yes, I was a dreamer. I was a total dreamer. And I and I was chasing a an outrageous dream in a sense. Mm-hmm. But I was doing it, I thought, rather sensibly, like logically, practically, yeah. and I was working my ass off. Yeah, right? you can't deny that. <laughs> so so um, where I ended up with this was um, I was a complete and total mess. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was completely exhausted. I had, you know, I was exhausted, like pretty much in any way and every way a human being might be exhausted. I was physically exhausted. I was emotionally just devastated mm-hmm. and, and, and I spent, right? Spiritually, I was depleted. Financially, I was in debt. Yeah. Uh, and I could, I, I, re- I fell into a pretty serious and hard depression. Mm-hmm. Really bad. Really bad. <laughs> um, and um, there, there's, there's a lot more to this story, but I'll just say that... Um, Right around the time I turned 25, where which was September of that year, and I was expecting to be on the road. Instead of being on the road playing gigs at colleges, I literally found myself back in, in my childhood home, in my childhood bedroom at my parents' house, barely able to get out of bed, just <sighs> devastated and depressed. You know, just totally, just totally, totally... Uh, Dejected. <laughs> Dejected. Done. I was done. Yeah. I, I had nothing left to give. Um, and it's funny because, like, in one sense, I guess I could be proud of the fact that I gave it everything that I had and, and, and did that, like, literally mm-hmm. gave it everything. But, um, but I did it at the expense of my health and my yeah. overall well-being. And it never occurred to me that that would be a thing. Like, it never occurred to me that that would even be a potential outcome well because like you never think of that right i'd had i mean i didn't yeah you know and in fact if you had asked me well what if this tour idea doesn't work if you had said that to me i would have said well then i'll I'll try something else like i'll do you know but i had i just was i was done and my mom i remember being on the phone with my mom and she said why don't you come home now you have to understand that my parents lovely people lovely parents they were not behind this idea at all. They were not. They were not you it's know, like they were uh, waiting for you to come back. 
Perhaps. I don't know about that, but they, they were not thrilled whatsoever with my decision to pursue this. Uh, and they were not excited about it. They were not particularly encouraging about it. They were, again, parents. And the way I remember my mom saying to me on, on the phone, we're not your fans, we're your parents. Now, I had friends whose who's fellow musician friends whose parents were also fans, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but that was not the way my, my parents rolled with this. You know, they were, um, they wanted, they just wanted me to be happy. And they wanted to see me be able to support myself like any parent would. Uh, but they weren't like, you know, they weren't invested at all in this dream of mine. In fact, they were really not very, uh, they were the opposite of enthusiastic about it. So for my mom to say, why don't you come home? And for me to not be able to think of a better idea yeah. than that was a testament to just how low I was and the state that I was in and how uh, utterly demoralized I was to, to take her up on that offer. But I felt like I really had no choice. I felt like I, I was just, I, I didn't, I wasn't even functioning at that point really very well. So, um, so I, that was me. And, and I, that was like, you know, turning 25 um, back home with mom and dad. And now what, now what? And, you know, um, I know I just talked a whole, whole heck of a lot, um, but that that was the story. That was kind of like the foundational story that um, I think um, led me to to connect with you because your show really focuses on people in their twenties. Mm-hmm. And I just I I love how you talked about like not giving up on like you said like such a big. David versus Goliath type dream. You know what I mean? Like you just, you kept going. It's like me. Like I'm a little, little show in Northern Canada. You know what I mean? And like you just do it anyway. And you, you keep, you keep striving for that, which I think is super cool. How did you, what I, what I'm curious about is, um, when I was reading your, your bio and stuff, you were talking about, the, I'm going to pronounce this completely wrong. Appalachian. I think that's how you pronounce it. Ha- uh, you could say that, uh, some say tomato, some say tomato, right? Uh, or Appalachian. Is Appalachian. How, okay. How did yeah. you get from... Nashville and music <laughs> to there. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Appal- Appalachian Trail is what she's talking about. Uh, I will tell you that. I will answer that question. But I just wanted to say that I have a real, a huge amount of empathy for people in their 20s because of my own experiences. Mm. And I also feel like the tw- your 20s are such an important time of life that doesn't really like you know in literature and in movies you, you there are all these coming of age stories typically about adolescence and teens yep. and yep um how you know, high it's that, all about how you like high school and and everything's kind of yeah, focused towards school. that and then then it's uh, like you have a family but what about everything in the middle <laughs> the 20s is like the pivotal decade of life i think in a lot of ways because it's it's the decade where you really truly transition from childhood to adulthood Uh, but you're also you're tasked with figuring out who on earth you want to be yep and you've lost like you've lost the safety net of high school in most cases you've lost the safety net of being at home if you've ever gone to college or or university or like even just straight to work like you've kind of lost that too so you're like it's just nobody tells you how to do it (laughs) you're just like here you go (laughs) 
nobody tells you how to do it, but in a way, everybody tells you how you should do yeah, it. Right? So there's, yeah. there's all these expectations. Uh, it's a tremendous amount of pressure coming from peers, coming from parents, yep. coming from teachers, coming from society at large about what you, quote, should, unquote, do yep. with your life. Yeah, Where and, you should and, be, when you should get married, all of that stuff, like everything. All of it. And this is something each of us has to figure out for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it takes a lot of courage and a lot of guts to pursue what's right for you if what's right for you happens to deviate at all from the expectations of all those uh, things I just mentioned, parents, society, teachers, siblings, friends, you know. um, Now, if what you want happens to be totally aligned with that, with the the sort of traditional or conventional path, great, like, wonderful. (laughs) But I have a sneaky suspicion that for a lot of people, that's not the mm-hmm. case. And it can be really difficult, first of all, to even, you're just getting to, you, what have you? What do you know about life and yourself? That's what I've all been you, told. I've been told that. I was, they were like, because I was re- mentioning like that I was writing a book and somebody said to me, they're like, well, what do you have to say? You're only like in your 20s. So I was like, thanks. <laughs> no, that's, yeah, that's like, not, that's. <laughs> That's the, the voice of discouragement. That's the, that's the voice that potentially can can really wreak havoc on your psyche. Oh, and for sure. The, yeah, and, and the, you know, where, and I didn't mean, I just want to clarify, that's not what I meant. By no, what no, 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 it's just, yeah. it just you're, you're right, because people have said that, like, directly to me, so I can only imagine yeah. what people say to, like, everybody else, you know what I mean? Sure, yeah, oh, I heard all the things. Mm-hmm. And they 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 uh, they left scars, uh, honestly, because when especially when they came from people that you didn't see it coming yeah. from, yeah. people that you thought were on your side, and then they tear you down in some way. It it was really hurtful, especially when I was in a that very vulnerable time of mm-hmm. my life and going through that really difficult. How did you not let those outside voices affect you even more? <sighs> well. Up to that point, let's talk about like up to 25 and then past 25 because, you know, where I kind of left off in that story was that demarcation of, of, you know, going all – I think before 25, any, any words that I heard that were meant to be discouraging or condescending or critical or naysaying or discouraging, I – tried to do like a to pull a like a, a, a jujitsu move and uh, use it actually not against my opponent but instead I would use that as fuel and mm. incentive mm-hmm. so for instance I, I had this I mean I, I'll be honest there's a lot of ego and grandiosity that accompanied all of this stuff um, there were a lot of different motivations but one part of the motivation was proving everyone that ever told me I couldn't wrong yeah and, and to show them, to show them, right? Like, ah, okay, every girl, right, that ever rejected me ever, like, <laughs> ha, 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 You're ha. like, take that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, every record company, like, I couldn't wait, in fact, to, like, I, I really, like, it, I, I'm not kidding when I said it was, it was, it felt good in a way to get those rejection letters because I felt like what that meant was, first of all, I get to laugh at all of these people industry or people uh, companies who whatever whoever and whatever it was that was rejected me i looked forward to having the last laugh and to say 
look at you, you missed out, you idiot. Yeah. You know, yeah. you could have been in on this. <laughs> um, so there was that aspect, but also all of my heroes that I really just had so much admiration for, musically speaking, had all been through this. Um, to use probably the most extreme example, the Beatles, the most perhaps successful recording artists, commercially, artistically, however you want to put it, impact-wise, ever, were rejected by every record company in the United States. And, and, you know, they were told, ah, guitar bands are on the way out. That won't work over here, you know. Um, so that's the most extreme example. But the truth is, is that, I, you know, I read voraciously all the biographies of, of my favorite musicians. And it was common, you know, they it was part of your journey yeah. is to get, is to endure endless rejection. That's almost always the nature of it. Oh, for so, sure. Yeah, so I felt like with each each re- actual physical rejection letter I received in the mail, it was a badge of honor. It was like, ha 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 ha! <laughs> I'm I'm one rejection closer. Yeah, now. you're like I'm I'm you know, getting there. I'm success. getting there. <laughs> so I, I actually felt like I had a pretty healthy attitude towards all that. And when people did try to discourage me, either intentionally or otherwise, I I didn't let it um, I didn't let it discourage me. I used it as fuel. Mm-hmm. I used it as an extra incentive. I used it as like, let's add that to my already, like let's pour that into my tank of fuel and drive and use it. Um, So that was how I handled it. Um, But you know, what's very interesting is that this stuff takes, at least in my case, I'll speak for myself, all of these rejections and sort of, um, you know, if you want to call them failures, as I would have, no doubt, back yeah. then. Um, they, they took, a, or I would say, let me let me use the word disappointments because I think that's the right word. All of the disappointments that I experienced along the way, I would try to shrug them off. I would try to have as healthy an attitude as I could. Some would hurt more than others, depending. Yeah. Some I would take very personally. Some I didn't take personally at all. Um, but they collectively took a cumulative toll i think on my Mm -hmm. spirit so when i you know when i put forth all that effort and out of 182 schools i was pursuing gigs at when it resulted in one gig it was i had already been like putting doing this for years and and like work you know and that it was kind of the final straw for me emotionally uh in terms of it was more disappointment than i could bear yeah so um, I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> it was like how how you kind of mentioned like how you use that negativity to fuel it. But then after so like after you yeah. hit that, how did you get out of that? Right. Yeah, that's um, I hope I can answer that for you, um, because the next it took me, I would say. About three years. Oh, wow to get to the point so okay so i returned home to to philly where Mm -hmm. i grew up i spent close to a year under my parents roof initially and really it was all about putting humpty dumpty back together again (laughs) or trying to because i i I was just what a good analogy (laughs) and um you know i was so to get to get to the point where i could be functional again where i could be not massively depressed 24 7 
not feeling hopeless. Um, and to get to a point where I could, um, you know, the, it, it was a year before I was able to move out of my parents' house. Um, that's the very short version of that very horrific year. Um, but I stayed in the area for another two years or so. And I would say that it wasn't until that third year that I started feeling at all kind of like myself again. I would, uh, for a good two solid years, um, it was it was recovering and yeah. trying to heal from the very raw wounds of, um, of that whole experience. Uh, when people, you know, there were some a couple of people from my past adult figures that I looked up to that I thought were on my side, and they um, they said things to me that um, that were deeply hurtful mm-hmm. be- because they were un- I was not expecting it from them. I thought yeah. they were people that were kind of like su- supportive of what I was doing, and uh, that that hurt. That hurt a lot. I I don't know how you know like. I, I wasn't able to make that not hurt. <laughs> um, but, you know, time, I suppose, heals all wounds. The, the wisest fortune cookie that I ever opened said this. I never forgot this. This fortune cookie. Tell me. It's, the message is nature, time, and patience are the three great physicians. Time, time, yes. Patience, true, facts. I'm not patient, but I agree with that. Nature, I mean, yeah. So nature is how I'll segue into your question about the Appalachian Trail. Nature, <laughs> nature time, and patience are the three great physicians. So uh, they are the things that heal. And um, I experienced that firsthand because for me, the the one of the – actually, the two things that helped the most in terms of getting out of that – that hole that I was in and, and the depression, which was quite serious. Um, I did the, I did the sort of conventional things, you know, go see a therapist, yeah. go take medications, that kind of stuff. To me, that was now for me, I'm, I'm not going to discourage that. I, I'm a believer in whatever works, whatever is genuinely helpful, do it. Mm-hmm. If you're in a desperate state, if you're depressed, if you're God forbid, suicidal, if you're whatever, um, try my, my advice is try things try yeah. as many like help yourself do get find, find what works and find what works for find you. what works and try as many different things as you can and see what actually works and helps mm-hmm. and there's something when you find something that helps wonderful but don't give up keep looking for things that will help um it's a, it's a really difficult experience um but uh, for me the things that i found most helpful the number one was the most ironic thing in the world it was the thing that I least expected to ever be helpful, and that was a boring, meaningless, tedious office job. <laughs> How about that? That was in, a, in an industry that I had no interest in and no understanding. Like, it was mechanical equipment. Like, I worked for this guy who was a, who was a distributor of different mechanical equipment in the tri-state area, pipes and seals and stuff, that construction stuff. Like, I had no knowledge of this understanding of it interest in it at all and but the thing about this job that i that i got was it was an office job i had a wicked commute it was took me like 90 minutes i think to drive there 
and each way or you know and then I worked there in the office all day like eight to five and then I would have to drive home and traffic rush hour traffic and um, but the thing of it is is that I was rewarded for well it, it served a lot of purposes number one it was a distraction from I was in a lot of raw emotional pain yeah really really raw uh, and there were there were breakups involved in this as well as just the music stuff it was just I was a it was just mess. a hot mess <laughs> It's a hot mess. And, uh, you know, I guess probably everyone's been there in, in, to some degree. And so for some reason, the 20s, it's kind of like you're, mo- you're, le- you're not likely to survive your 20s without having at some point been a hot mess. Facts. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, but the job helped me in a really unexpected way, which was it distracted me from my pain. It gave me something else to do. And I was actually rewarded and appreciated, like just for being competent. Mm-hmm. I was I was competent to a fault and reliable to a fault. I mean, is what I really wanted to say. I, I showed up no matter what. Um, I was, you know, just uh, steadfastly reliable and and you know did this job and you know was was appreciated and and rewarded financially. So it helped me climb out of debt. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was emotionally stabilizing as well as financially stabilizing. So, uh, you know, it, it was like I liken it to a pair of cr- of crutches. If you break your leg, you wear the crutches until you heal, and then you don't need the crutches anymore. And that's what the job was like. Um, but the other thing that was immensely helpful for me was this nature piece. I always loved hiking and being out in nature, and and um, I did that you know, a lot in Nashville, actually, at a place called Radnor Lake, just so beautiful. And I found that being out in nature and hiking, the combination of the exercise and getting the immersion in nature, no headphones, by the way, no distractions. I wasn't listening to podcasts that didn't exist because they didn't exist. Um, I wasn't listening to music. I was just out in nature with myself. And I, I would refer to it as like getting a nature massage because it would all of your senses would be, you know, stimulated, even Mm -hmm. if I wasn't paying attention, I wasn't into identifying names of plants and trees and birds or anything. But just being immersed in that environment was incredibly, and to this day, was incredibly therapeutic and incredibly healing. And to me, it didn't really matter why it just simply was, it was undeniable. Yeah. And so um, that led me eventually to getting more and more into hiking. And then I learned I had never, I was a city kid, so I'd never even spent a night outside ever in my life. Um, and I, I, I did a, went on a backpacking trip that changed my life and got, and so as I tend to do and tended to do certainly back then was when I got interested in something. I mean, I went all out. So, yeah. uh, you know, within uh, two years of that first ever weekend backpacking trip, I found myself on the Appalachian Trail, which is a... 2168 mile long trail in the u.s that goes through 14 states from georgia in the south all the way up to maine wow in the north now i didn't do the whole thing i did about a quarter of it about 540 yeah. miles but that was the appalachian trail i don't know how much t- more time you have left uh <laughs> no but no that's that's amazing i do have one question based on your whole story and every and like your whole kind of timeline through your 20s if you could go back and tell 20 year old eric anything what would you tell him 
<laughs> well, <laughs> I feel like it's a wrote, loaded question. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I wrote a an article in which I kind of answered that question. Um, it's on a website called Tiny Buddha, and the title of the article is something along the lines of you could probably find it um, uh, if you Google my name and Tiny Buddha. It's something about like when um, when uh, the pursuit of happiness makes you unhappy. Mm-hmm. Just about all, I recount basically the, the story of pursuing that music dream, and um, and the article concludes with kind of myself talking to my younger self in my twenties, and and the message you know there are a lot of thi- there are a lot of messages. Number one is just for me my whole sense of self-worth or a very large an unhealthily large part of my self-worth was was dependent upon being this thing that i thought i had to be mm-hmm. and the sense of my identity as a as a singer songwriter and and if i wasn't successful at it by my own standards then i was worthless and and it sounds ridiculous but i think it's, it's an easy um mindset to adopt especially when you really feel like you have to prove yourself yeah um, so the fundamental thing that I would say to anyone in their twenties or anyone period is you are worthwhile. You don't have to do anything <laughs> to prove your worth just by fact of you existing right now here on this planet, you are worthy. You're, you are worthy of love and you are a worthwhile soul and you don't. You don't have to earn that. You don't have to do anything to make that. You are. That's the starting point. I love that because I feel like so many people like it could be from like traumatic experiences or relationships, and like they try to earn that person's like attention, their worth. Like you said, like just everything, and that's a really important message. I feel like we don't hear enough of. That's one one <laughs> message. Maybe maybe the most important one that I would share to that to my younger twenty something self and to any twenty something selves listening out there. Um, and there are a lot of other messages. And uh, you know, one another one would be that <sighs> go. I mean, certainly go for your dreams. Mm. Go all out as as to the best of your ability. Pursue your dreams. Pursue the things that you most want to do the things that 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 scare make you, you feel alive that, that scare you <laughs> what's that i said things yeah, that, that scare you, you. <laughs> yeah that scare you but in a good way yeah meaning, meaning that they're important to you mm-hmm. and they uh like absolutely pursue your dreams uh, here i went through this whole experience and i'm still saying do that yeah um but also understand that one of the reasons to do it First of all, is to feel alive and to and to you know uh, we get as far as we know this one opportunity to be to be here on Earth and to live and uh, you want to maximize it and make the most of it, but also know that whatever happens, you're still worthwhile, and the thing or things that you think are necessary to to making you happy, they may or may not make you happy. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're each on our own journey to figuring out how to be a person in this world and to be the person that we want to be in this world. And it's a journey. It's a process. Uh, it's full of ups and downs. Disappointments are inevitable, but understand that you can endure 
a lot and you can actually uh, endure crushing disappointment. And on the other side of that, this is maybe the heart of the message. Thanks for letting me figure this out as I'm speaking, talking it through. The heart of the message is that on the other side of disappointment, sadness, depression, even devastating loss, there is there are rewards and happiness and fulfillment on the other side of that that you can't see from your vantage point when you're at the bottom of that hill, but over that hill on the other side, there's all kinds of possibilities out there. There's all kinds of things that you honestly, you couldn't even imagine might bring you joy and satisfaction. And you just need to persevere so that you can make it over that hill and to to discover those things. And please, please do. It's worth it. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Um, where can my listeners find you? Where are you? Uh, I'm right here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in LA. Hi. <laughs> no, hi. Uh, well, you can go to my website, which is just my name, Eric Teplitz, uh, E-R-I-C, and the last name is T-E-P-L-I-T-Z. So it's ericteplitz.com. And on that website, I have two invitations, actually, for you that are totally free. Number one, if you like... Uh, what you've heard about my story, then um, on that website, there's a ton of free content. I've written over a hundred articles that you can access uh, on that website. And there's also videos, but a couple of other free invitations would be number one, I, I made a course that I'm really proud of an online course. It's called opening to greater possibilities. And it really was in a sense designed for my 20 something self uh, from the vantage point of my nearly 50-year-old self. And and it's it's filled with ideas and ways in which you can get yourself out of stuck areas in life and open yourself up to things. I'm really, it's 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 a true labor of love, that, that course. And you can get a free preview of it. You can sign up for a free preview of it uh, on my website. And also, I do one-on-one personal coaching. So if you're going through stuff, and feel like you can use the support of a coach that might be able to help you get through something or figure something out because there's a lot to figure out in your 20s and beyond i will <laughs> i'm sorry to say but <laughs> you can you can sign up for a free completely obligation free coaching call with me and sometimes people get a lot out of just simply having a single conversation yeah for sure that's amazing um social media or anything I kind of avoid social media, so Good for now, for I would you. Just, yeah, I would just point people to the website, and, and they can they can reach me through the website. They can contact awesome. me through the website, and anything it's all there. Awesome! <laughs> I really appreciate you sharing your story and like the struggles you went through when you were my age, and like the messages that you wish you had when you were going through that time. And I'm sure that a lot of other 20 year olds, 20 some year olds and everybody else in general, um, can appreciate those messages and use them as they move forward. So I really appreciate it. All of your insight and your sharing. My pleasure, Shelby. Mm. I really appreciate that you've put this podcast together. I think it's such a cool resource and I'm sure it's something I would have benefited from back in my twenties had it existed, but you were, you were only three. (laughs) I, you know what? I would have probably gotten a lot of entertainment listening to you at three years old doing a podcast. <laughs> I was too shy when I was little. It never would have happened. <laughs> but I appreciate it, Eric. Um, and we'll keep in touch, all right? Excellent. All right. Thanks so Thank much you. for having me on. Thank you.
Wow. Okay. When he was mentioning Bluebird Cafe there, I freaked out. And because, like, Taylor Swift played there. <laughs> but I feel like he wasn't a Taylor Swift fan, so I didn't want to, like, talk about that too much. I wanted to be like, so, did it look like the pictures? Did it look like what she did? Blah, 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 blah. Um, so I was trying to control that a little bit. It's crazy how you can kind of, like, fangirl over a place based on, like, who's been there. You know what I mean? It'd be, like, the same as Grand Old Opry and Madison Square, Gar- Madison Square Gardens and stuff like that. So that's pre- that was pretty cool. Um, that's it for today, guys, though. I will uh, see you guys next week.